Father, I pray you would help us to not boast in anything of ourselves, Lord, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, Lord, but that we would boast in Jesus Christ alone, his death and his resurrection. Lord, your word says uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that it is not of our doing that we are in Christ Jesus, uh, but it's of your doing that we are in him. And he has become our all in all. He has become our wisdom from God, our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord, not in ourselves. And Lord, we are coming to a passage this morning where that point is going to be made quite emphatically by Paul. Lord, this is a passage that maybe more than any other passage tends to uh, expose our hypocrisy, Lord. I certainly found that out studying for the message. Um, every time I read this passage, Lord, it, it uh, just points a, a finger at, at the hypocrisy that is yet to be repented of, that I still have need to be sanctified of, Lord, and um, I'm sure I won't be the only one, Lord, as we walk through this passage um, today and the next couple of weeks. Lord, I pray that you would give us soft hearts to hear your word, uh, that we would be humble, that we would earnestly listen to what the scripture says, Lord, and that we would take stock of our own lives and that any areas of our lives where we find ourselves falling short of your glory, where we find ourselves sinning and being selfish, Lord, help us to run quickly to your cross. Help us to run to Christ uh, to find pardon and cleansing, Lord. We thank you that Jesus paid for all of our sin, past, present, and future, if we are trusting in him this morning. And we find in him an ever-flowing fountain of forgiveness, Lord. So help us to keep that in mind as we come to this passage. And any who have not yet come to that fountain of grace, Lord, may, may you grant them repentance and faith as they hear your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 3. I thought it was important to, to not rush through this passage since chapter 13 really is the centerpiece of this letter that Paul is writing to this church in Corinth. And it really addresses the heart of the matter of all of the problems that this church was dealing with, and that is a lack of love. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 13, and let me read verses 1 through 3 to you. Paul says, And if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Your vehicle can run without a lot of things. When I lived in California, I found that out because they didn't require your vehicle to pass as rigorous 
an inspection test as they do here. All they required was that your car pass an emissions test, and if it passed that test, then you could drive it on the road. Uh, it didn't really matter what else was wrong with it, you could drive it on the road. Of course, you needed to make sure that it was operating well enough that you wouldn't get pulled over by the police because it was that much of a danger, but if you could float by without them thinking you were about to kill someone, you could drive that car on the road. I saw that cars could run without having everything in order. I saw a lot of ratty cars out there that you would never see on the road here. But as you all know, one thing your car cannot run without is oil. You may have a brand new car that you just bought off the lot, spotless, not a speck of rust on it. All of the parts are in perfect working condition. But if, while driving down the road, that oil plug falls out and all that oil drains out of your vehicle, your vehicle will soon be toast. It cannot run without oil. And in verses 1 through 3 of this chapter that we're looking at, we're going to see that it is the same way in the Christian life. Love is the oil in our lives and in our relationships. And without love, it will all come to a grinding halt. You may have all the giftedness in the world, and you may perform the most extravagant feats of service to others, but if you don't have love, then you are nothing. Paul ended chapter 12, which we looked at last week, by saying this in verse 31. Chapter 12, verse 31. Paul says, but earnestly desire the greater gifts. Earnestly desire the greater gifts. He commanded them there to be zealous for the greater gifts. But the Corinthians were all too eager to be zealous over what was greater because they themselves wanted to be greater. Remember, they were in a hurry to climb the social ladder. Anything that they could do to um, become exalted in the eyes of others, they would do that. Whether it was trying to ride the coattails of their favorite teacher or trying to use a certain gift that elevated them in comparison to others. And so when Paul commands them to earnestly desire or to be zealous for the greater gifts, they're going to be all too eager to obey that command and for all the wrong reasons. So that is why Paul continues in verse 31, and he says, And I will show you, or and I show you a still more excellent way. They were likely to twist Paul's command to be zealous for the greater things, the greater gifts, by exalting themselves. They were liable to abuse the greater spiritual gifts to propel themselves up that social ladder. So to make sure that these believers would obey his command in the way that Paul intended, he's going to take some time here in chapter 13 to show them how to go about being zealous for the greater gifts. He's going to show them the excellent way in which they should walk as they pursue these greater gifts. He's going to show them in this chapter that selfishness has no place in the proper use of or in the zeal for spiritual gifts. We're looking at the first three verses of this chapter, as I've mentioned. And in these three verses, Paul is going to show these believers the indispensability of love. 
Just as oil is indispensable for your car, so love is indispensable for our lives as believers. Without love, all of their giftedness and all of their zeal would come to absolutely nothing. And this is a lesson that each one of us needs to learn. Every believer throughout the history of the church needs to continually be reminded of this lesson. So that's what we're going to look at today. And the first thing we find is in verse 1. And in this verse, we're going to find that gaudy gifts plus no love equals nothing but noise. Just a bunch of noise. Look at verse 1. What does Paul say there? He says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging symbol. In these three verses, Paul is going to speech, or speak with much hyperbole. He's going to exaggerate or speak in the highest, most lofty terms in order to make a point. In each verse, we're going to see that Paul is going to envision a situation in which he has a gift or is performing an act of service that is at its highest level imaginable. And he's going to say that if I am at that highest level but I don't have love, then it really is meaningless. Here, Paul says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, to speak in tongues was to speak in a language that you had never learned to speak before. It was an obvious display of the Spirit's power enabling you to do something that you could never do on your own. For example, I took six years of French in high school, and I never got the language down. How much more supernatural is it for the Spirit to enable someone to speak in a language that they've never learned to speak? That's what the gift of speaking in tongues was. And in the book of Acts, we only ever see people gifted in this way, speaking with known human languages. But here, in chapter 13, verse 1, Paul envisions a hypothetical situation where he can speak not only with the tongues of men, but also with the tongues or the languages of angels. And Paul is saying that even if he could do that, but was lacking in love, then he would be nothing. It didn't matter how otherworldly the language was that he could speak in, if he was lacking love, he would be nothing more than a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, he begins this chapter focusing on tongues probably because that was the very gift that the Corinthians had become overly preoccupied with. Again, when we get to chapter 14, that will become quite apparent. They were practicing this gift without any regard for using it to build up others. And that is why God gives us spiritual gifts, to build up others. But they were using this gift in such a way that they were not attempting to build up others. They were only attempting to build up themselves. They were not making sure that their tongue speaking was being interpreted for the good of the church. No one could understand what was being said. They had become a congregation of noisy gongs and clanging cymbals. Has anybody here ever been to a symphony? Have you ever seen the person with the cymbals perform a solo? No, you haven't. And there's a good reason for that. You've never seen that. 
You've never seen them haul a gong onto the stage and give that person five minutes to just bang away at that thing. You've never seen that. It seems that the Corinthians' corporate worship, if it hadn't already, was in danger of devolving into this chaos of unintelligible sounds. I've been to a worship service like that. The pastor told the congregation to all begin praying to the Lord in tongues. And everyone around me started to pray in what they thought were other languages, and there was no attempt whatsoever made to translate what was being said. This cacophony of sounds just left me staring at the floor, waiting for it to be over. There was nothing that my faith could latch onto or be encouraged by. This is what is beginning to happen in the Corinthian church. And it was lovelessness that had brought them to practice the gift in this way. Paul is saying that it doesn't matter how otherworldly and impressive the tongue speaking may be. Without love, such a person is like a symbol or a person with symbols trying to play a solo in the middle of a symphony. It's just noise. It's not building anybody up. Verse 2, Paul says, If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, notice he keeps repeating the word all. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. Paul mentions other gifts here, the gift of prophecy, which the way he's using it seems to encompass knowing all mysteries and having all knowledge. We saw last week that in chapter 14, Paul is going to assert that the gift of prophecy is greater than the gift of tongue speaking, because prophecy being understandable to our our ears, that can build you up, whereas tongues uninterpreted cannot, because nobody understands what is being said. These these are gifts, prophecy, knowledge. These are gifts that are greater because they can be understood by others. These are the very gifts that at the end of of chapter 12, Paul is encouraging them to be zealous about. But again, Paul wants them to be zealous about the greater gifts with a zeal that is in accordance with love rather than selfishness. He wants them to be zealous for the right reasons. And so here in verse 2, he's exposing how selfishness is an abuse of the greater gifts. To guard against them pursuing greater gifts for selfish reasons, Paul here says that even if he had the gift of prophecy to the degree that he could fathom all mysteries and possess all knowledge so that nothing at all was hidden from him, And just as a side note, Paul is clearly speaking in hyperbole because who's the only one who knows that way? God. Only God knows all mysteries and all knowledge. So Paul is clearly speaking hyperbolically here. But he's saying that even if he knew all that there was to know, if he did not have love, he says that he would be nothing. Nothing. And Paul says that if he had the gift of faith, This is a gift that was over and above saving faith. 
This was a gift by which someone could accomplish great things and miracles. Paul says that even if he had the gift of faith that was such that he could dislodge a whole mountain from its place, if he did not have love, he would be nothing. Now that probably would have struck a chord with the Corinthians. They wanted to be something. We've seen that throughout this letter. They had a great zeal to be something. And Paul is saying, no matter what your giftedness is, if you don't have love, you are nothing at all. Nothing. Nobodies. That's the the heading of this section of verse 2. Greater gifts plus no love equals nobodies. Paul's saying that no matter what their gifting is, if they don't have love, they'll be nothing. They'll be nobodies in God's eyes. As far as the church is concerned, they'll be good for nothing because they won't be building anybody up without love. They might be impressed with themselves. They might get the world to take notice of them, but all of their gifting will not amount to a hill of beans if they don't have love. That brings us to verse 3. And in this verse, we see that glorious giving plus no love will equal no reward. Glorious giving without love equals no reward. Verse 3, Paul says, And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Paul here really elevates his argument. This verse almost doesn't make sense to us. Surely, someone who would give all that they own to charity, surely such a person is loving. Surely, someone who is committed enough to to go and be burned at the stake, surely such a person would be loving. But Paul here shows that such things can be done without love. They can be done from selfish motives. Turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6. This is the Sermon on the Mount. And listen to what Jesus says in verses 1 to 4. Matthew 6, verses 1 to 4. Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Practicing righteousness. For what motive? To be noticed. To be made much of in the eyes of others. To be thought better than others. Jesus says, beware of that. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So, verse 2, when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. He's saying that if, if, if you give and you blow a trumpet about it, If you're doing that in order to be noticed by men, that is the extent of your reward. God will not reward you for that. All you got was a pat on the back, and that's all you can expect. Verse 3, But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret 
will reward you. Jesus is saying to do these things in secret in order to put a restraint on yourself so that you won't pollute your good deeds with selfish motives. He's saying do it in secret. Just do it for the Lord. Just do it for the good of the one that you're you're giving to. Don't do it to lift up yourself. So you can give with selfish motives to be noticed by others. We see this in Acts chapter 5, which tells us about Ananias and Sapphira. Do you remember that couple? How they sold a piece of property and they donated a portion of it to the church. But they lied about it. They pretended that they had brought all of the proceeds from the sale when in fact they had only brought a portion of it. And why did they do that? Well, apparently they did that so that they would be thought well of in the church. Selfish motives. They wanted others to think well of them. That kind of selfish man-pleasing can be at work in martyrdom as well. For example, say a soldier who does not have love for others, but only self-love. A soldier may run into a hail of gunfire along with his brothers in arms, not because he wants to protect them or serve his country, but because he knows they would be ashamed of him and disown him if he didn't go out there. Some people fear what others think more than they fear death. And so to preserve their sense of honor and to preserve their legacy, they will choose death rather than live with the shame of running from death. They give their lives not out of selfless love for God and others, but out of a love for self. Self-love can drive you to martyrdom. You can be so in love with self, so concerned about what others think of, of you, that you can go to a stake and be burned rather than have people look down on you. A giver and a martyr who do not have love will gain nothing by their giving and their dying. They will receive no reward from their Father in heaven. This raises a question. If, if I can't judge how I'm doing with the Lord based on those things, how do I measure my faithfulness as a Christian? How do I engage, how do I gauge the sincerity of my faith? Well, these first three verses in 1 Corinthians 13 show us that we should not conclude anything about ourselves by how gifted we are or by how many people we have materially helped or by how much we have suffered. Judas Iscariot, for example, was gifted. When Jesus sent the twelve out to preach the gospel of the kingdom of heaven and he gave them authority to cast out demons and to heal diseases, Judas was a part of their number. Judas was out there preaching, healing, casting out demons along with all of them. And yet what happened to him? If you're still in Matthew, turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21. Jesus says there, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, 
Did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Jesus is telling us that on that great day, when all have to give an account to the Lord for their lives and whether or not they truly belong to him as his children, there will be some who Jesus will turn away from the gates of heaven and they will say, but Lord, I prophesied in your name. I delivered people from demon possession. I performed miracles. I healed people. What do you mean I I don't have a place in your kingdom? Jesus will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. Preaching a good sermon is not a reliable indicator that my walk with the Lord is going well. Writing a big check to charity is not a foolproof way to make sure that you are a Christian. Being persecuted at work does not necessarily tell you that you are honoring Christ in the workplace. We have to look past that to see what is the heart behind those things. We have to examine our hearts Is my preaching this morning, I was praying about that this morning, is my preaching flowing out of a love for God and out of a love for you? Or is it just some attempt to be well thought of by others? Writing a big check to charity. Why why would someone do that? Is it out of a true expression of love for God and love for others? Or is it just an attempt to look good in the eyes of others? Is being persecuted at work, is that a result truly of loving Christ enough to humbly stand for him or loving others enough to be willing to winsomely proclaim the gospel to them? Or am I just being persecuted because I'm simply a selfish and abrasive jerk and I want others in the church to pat me on the back because I was willing to take a stand? Why do we do what we do? 1 Corinthians 13 is forcing us to ask ourselves that question. Why do we do what we do? Look with me at Romans chapter 13. Romans 13, verses 8 through 10. Paul says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. If love is the fulfillment of all the law, then what is lovelessness but the breaking of all the law? Next, turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, and I'll read verses 7 through 12. The Apostle John, he says in verse 7, Beloved, 
Let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. The measure of a Christian, the measure of how closely you are walking with the Lord, is not how many gifts you have or what kind of gifts you have, spiritual gifts that is. It's not how many good deeds, uh, how many good deed boxes you have checked off of your list. Hopefully you understand that I'm not against spiritual gifts, not against good deeds. Certainly not. But what I'm saying is that if you and I do those things, if we exercise those gifts, if we perform those good deeds out of selfish motives rather than loving motives, all of those deeds and all of those gifts become nothing but filthy rags in God's sight. You can tell that you're walking with the Lord when you begin to love others the way that God has loved you. And how exactly did God love us? Well, let's go to our last passage, Romans chapter 5. God defines for us what love is and what kind of love honors him and pleases him. Romans chapter 5. We read it in our call to worship, but verse 6. Paul says, For while we were still helpless... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, not righteous, not good, sinners, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The love of God is a love that has a deep concern for others, even though they don't deserve that concern. The love of God is a love that sacrificially acts for the good of those who don't deserve it. What does selfishness act for? Self. Self-love acts for the good of self. Christ-like love acts for the good of others. And according to verse 5 of Romans 5, it is that love of God that has been poured out in our hearts if we are believers. So we ought to love one another with that kind of love. If we love one another with God's love, it is then that our gifts, instead of being resounding gongs and clashing cymbals, our gifts will make a beautiful sound of melody to the Lord. If we love one another with God's love, it is then that we will be something in Christ's kingdom rather than nothing. Do you remember what Jesus said about what the path to greatness in his kingdom is? Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 to 28, Jesus said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. 
It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great. That was what the Corinthians were wanting. They were wanting to become great. Jesus says, whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. If we love one another with God's love, it is then that we can look forward to a great reward, to a crown that we can take and cast at the feet of Jesus in the worship of him. Just one final clarification before we end this message. I want to make clear that we are not saved by our love for one another. We cannot love well enough to earn the salvation that Christ came to bring us. No, we are saved by God's love for us. We are saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ alone, faith in what Jesus did out of love for us. But as we saw in 1 John 4, love is the certain result of our salvation. Love is the evidence that you and I are saved. We would have no capacity to love if God had not first loved us and saved us by his grace. When God saves someone, he changes them and he causes them to love him and to love one another. That's why John wrote in 1 John 4, 7, everyone who loves is born of God because no one can love unless they have been born of God. On the other hand, 1 John 4, verse 20 says, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. If you say that you love God, but you do not love your brothers and sisters in Christ, then God's word says that you are a liar and you are on your way to hell. If that's you, Jesus invites you to come to him for salvation. He calls you to repent and believe in the gospel. To repent, that is to turn away from your sin, to turn away from desiring to live yourself and instead desire to live for the Lord. And to believe in the gospel, to put all of your faith in what Jesus did by his righteous life and his atoning death for sinners and his glorious resurrection, to put all your faith on him to save you. And if you call on him to save you, if you ask him to take over your life, then he will cause you to experience his love for you by saving you, though you do not deserve it. And he will enable you to love others just as he has loved you. Let's pray.